Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think that's all I'm supposed to tell you. Good. All right, here we are. Week uh, two in our series called Live Differently. Live Differently is one of the phrases that we say oftentimes around here because it's something that we value. We believe as Christians, we're called to live differently than the rest of the world. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And so we're going to be talking over the coming weeks about here's what it looks like within our cultural context to live differently and some of the ways that that might happen. And we're going to actually be starting today in Genesis. Now, if you don't know anything about the Bible, Genesis is the very beginning. And the first 11 chapters of Genesis are primeval history. And what that is, is it's like the the backdrop. It's the foundation. It sets up the rest of the scriptures and the story that's taking place. And so it introduces you to some of the main characters. Obviously, main character would be God, uh, creator of everything. And then you have mankind who is made in his image. And then you also have kind of what went wrong within the world. As everybody looks at the world and goes... You know, it's not exactly how it should be. Whether you're a Christian or not, I think we all can admit it's not how things should be. And it explains that this thing called sin enters into the world and into us. And and the consequence of that is our, our rebellion against God is we have a broken relationship with him, which has tons of different consequences in our life. And we also experience death, all types of different deaths, spiritual, emotional, relational death as a consequence of that separation from God. And I'm, I'm consistently reminded of the, uh, of the brokenness of not only the world, but of me. Recently, I had to go take a, a test, which I'm normally not good at tests, but this test I was actually pretty good at because it was a sleep test. The reason why I had to take a sleep test is because my wife says she is tired of hearing me snore. She can't sleep when I sleep, and the kids are now starting to hear all the way down the hall. And so she said, you need to get this taken care of. So I went and I took a, a sleep study And if you've ever done one of these before, it's quite interesting. They pretty much take you to an office complex with a bed, and they hook you up to all these monitors all over, and they put a mask on you, and and they start monitoring how you're sleeping. And what they're looking for is how many apnea episodes you have. So how many times do you stop breathing, and then your brain has to kind of wake up a little bit so that you continue to breathe? How many times does that happen in one hour? And so I took the test and I went home and, and this Wednesday, my doctor called and gave me the results. And he says, well, okay, well, here's kind of how this works is, is zero to five episodes in an hour is okay. That's pretty average. And if you have anywhere from five to 15, you do have sleep apnea. 15 to 30, it's getting pretty serious. Anything above 30, severe. And I got to tell you, even for your age, you excel at sleep apnea. You had 33 episodes in one hour. That means every two minutes, your body has to wake itself up so that you will not die, so you'll continue to breathe while you sleep. And I go, look, doc, this is a consequence of one, my father, this is his fault. He has sleep apnea. I knew I was going to get it. And this is also a consequence of sin in the world. Okay, I just want you to know it's not fair. So I was telling our staff about it this week, about my results, and they were all making fun of me. They're like, oh, you're going to have like a fighter pilot mask on. It's going to be so funny. And I'm like, you know what? After I get this and I can actually sleep, I'm going to have so much energy. Don't be surprised. And in a year from now, I'm a triathlete, all right? I'm going to have a six-pack, and you guys are going to be like, who is this guy? And I'll be like, it's all, it's the CPAP, baby. Anyway, 
So the, the story continues on, and um, man continues to rebel against God, and God gets fed up with it, and he says, you know what? This isn't working. Let's wipe them all out. But there is one family, Noah and his family, that he's, uh, he protects, and they build an ark, and he wipes everybody out. And, and after that takes place, you've got a couple generations of Noah's family beginning to repopulate the earth. The problem is they get back to their old ways pretty quickly. They start to rebel against God and all the things they knew to be true about them and, and about God. And, and we get to chapter 11 in Genesis. And that's where we're going to land today is chapter 11. And we see a story that if you grew up in church, you probably have heard the story before. Maybe it was in a coloring book or something. But one that we haven't talked a whole lot about. But it is interesting. So let's jump in. Genesis 11 verse 1 says this. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward... They found a plain in Shinar and settled there. So maybe you recognize the beginning of this story. Within just a couple chapters, we've not only learned about what, who man is and who God is, but we also learned about what the purpose of man is. And one of the purposes of man is to be co-creators with their creator. Is they're supposed to um, join in on what God is doing in the world, to partner with him. And part of what they were commanded to do as they partner with him is, he says, to be fruitful and multiply and go and fill the earth. Now, when I hear that, I think, that is like my dream job right there. To have sex and travel? That's what you want me to do with my life? Sign me up! And yet, they decide, nah, we don't really want to do that. Instead of going out, we're going to stay in. And we've been talking about this in the last week or so, is, is man's disposition is to look inward, is to be focused inward about ourselves and our wants and our needs and what we think is best. But God continues to call us outward. He says, no, 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 it's not about you. It's about others. It's about me. But they decide, no, we don't want to make it about others. We, we want to make it about ourselves. Continues on in verse 3, it says this. It says, uh, they say to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They use brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And we already see here the, the creativity in man. That they have the ability, and this was God's design, is to take the raw materials that God has provided and rearrange them in such a way that we can not only bless ourselves, but we can bless the entire world. Again, it, it's about outward focused. But because man is so inwardly focused, we oftentimes take these good gifts he gives us and we use them not for the benefit of others, but for the benefit of ourselves. Verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Now, if you've heard this story before growing up, um, you, you probably had a misconception of what they were doing. Now, they were building a city, and we always focus in on the tower, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but they were building, the picture that comes to my mind is, if you've ever been to a um, place like Italy, for example, there are all these walled cities. We, uh, we visited one before our kids were born, and we loved it so much as the city of Siena that we ended up naming our first child after it, because it was just such an incredible time. And it was a city that's on a hill, and you could see it throughout the countryside. And it's a walled city, and in the middle of the city is this giant tower where people would gather in front of it, and they would do life together, and they have horse races, and it's just, it was incredible. So that's like the image that comes to my mind. It's just this beautiful city with this tower. The purpose of the tower was uh, not just to be this incredible, this symbol of how incredible they were, but what they're trying to do was they're trying to connect with God. 
I saw a video this week, it was like a short or something, where it was a lady and she was freaking out and she goes, look, if God was mad about the Tower of Babel and them trying to build all the way up to the sky, do you think we landed on the moon? You think he'd allow us to do that? And I was like, I don't, what? <laughs> like, okay, all right. Uh, but that was not what was happening here. They're not trying to build a tower so that they can invade heaven. On average, the tower could be probably, it was about 300 feet. They didn't think, you know, if I just go 300 feet, I'll probably be in heaven. No, they, that's not what they were thinking. What they were building was, and this is pretty common in the ancient world, is a ziggurat. And this was a structure that looked a lot like a pyramid. It had staircases that led up to the top. And this was kind of a focal point of not only the city, but this is kind of the stairway to heaven. This is where not you go to heaven, but, but heaven came down to you. This was like the place where you could meet the divine. And so as we go to this place, we're inviting the divine to come and to meet with us. And so that's what they thought they were doing, was they were going to build a temple in which they could worship. And they believed that gods, or God, had some sort of needs that they could meet. So there's this, uh, this picture that God is, is like humans, this a little bit bigger, is what, what they kind of thought. And so gods have, gods or, or God has needs, shelter and food and clothing and things like that. So if we give God those things, then God is going to, in return, going to owe us and give us something like protection, or he's going to provide for us. And so it was a mutually beneficial relationship is how they viewed God. And, and this is how they were going to, to meet him or them. But what they don't understand is that God has no needs. And this is a big part of the story is they think that God has needs and that they have needs. And that's why they were created. And that's why they can have this mutually beneficial relationship. But they don't have any, God doesn't have any needs. In fact, he doesn't even need a relationship with you or I. Like God is not in heaven looking down and going, I just wish Cody would be my friend. He's so fun, you know? Like I just, why doesn't he want me? <laughs> no, God is fine. He's okay. He doesn't need me, but he does want me. He does want a relationship with me. In fact, he wants a relationship with me so badly that he would come down and he would die so that we could have a relationship but we still act as if God needs us, as if there's something that we can offer God. And we may not explicitly say it, but we act like it. We go, okay, God, if I am a moral person, I live a good life, whatever that means, and I'm, I'm better than the guy next door, then you owe me a, a health and wealth-filled life. That somehow it's a transaction between us and God, and we're going to give you what you want as long as you give me what I want. But God's going to show that's not exactly how he works. Continues on. says this. In this important verse, he says, um, no, you're other way. One more. That's the one. This is an important line. So that we may make a name for ourselves. And so here we see the motivation is they want to be known. They want to be somebody. There's something within the human heart that says, I want people to remember me when I'm gone. I want people to admire me when they, when they see me. I want my life to matter. I want to be somebody. And so what they do is they build a monument to their own greatness. And we've been doing this ever since. As we build different monuments, we have different status symbols. We have different ways in order to make a name for ourselves. And you can even see it depending on which city that you're in. So if you're on Wall Street, how do you make a name for yourself? This is interactive. You can, you can answer. Through 
Money. Thank you. The first three rows got it. Through money. Or uh, let's say if you're in Washington, D.C., how do you make a name for yourself? Someone yelled out lie, steal, and cheat during the first service, which I thought was kind of right. No, through politics. You make a name through, through politics. Or if you're in Hollywood, how do you make a name for yourself? Fame. Recognition. You become a celebrity. How do you make a name for yourself here, like within our community? I have a theory. I think the way is, yeah, all of those are important, but ultimately the way that you make a name for yourself is you, you have a picture-perfect life. You got it all. You got the beautiful family with the beautiful spouse and you go on the vacations and you live in the right neighborhood and you have a successful career and, and you just have this picture-perfect life. That's how you make a name for yourself. Tim Keller says, to make a name in the language of the Bible is to construct an identity for ourselves. See, we make a name so that we may feel valuable, so that we have some sort of worth, and so that we can have an identity, that we know who we are. And so what they're trying to do is they're not just building a tower, they're building an identity, they're building a self-worth. The reason why we, are, we strive to do this is because we were made to have our identity rooted in our relationship with God. That's who we are, we're children of God. And because of that relationship, our life has meaning and significance and value as we get to know him and he knows us. But when we had this rebellion against God and we lost that relationship, it's left this void within the human heart. And we're continuing to try to figure out who am I and what makes me valuable. And so we spend our entire lives just trying to prove. I'm proving that I am somebody. I'm proving that I am valuable. I'm proving who I am. Continues, says this. Otherwise... We will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And so you see these two things that are happening. One, they're motivated by their own pride. Is I am somebody and I'm going to do something with my life. But then you also see the other side of it, which is fear. Is if I don't do something, then who, I, who am I? Do I have any value? Does my life have any meaning? Because if I don't do this, I'm just going to be scattered through the earth and I'm going to be forgotten as if I never lived. And so they oscillate between their pride and their fear. Let me give you a list of names, see if you can find out what's common between them. Steve Jobs, Marilyn Monroe, Bill Clinton, Gerald Ford, Malcolm X, Nelson Mandela, Lance Armstrong, Michael Bay, Newt Gingrich, Jamie Foxx, Simone Biles, Aaron Judge. You know what they all have in common? They're all adopted. There's this fascinating correlation between being adopted and being very successful in your field. And adoption is this beautiful picture. The scripture uses it all the time. It's what God does with us. He adopts us. But you have to imagine it's not just a coincidence that these people are so successful and yet they have this, this rough beginning. I wonder if in their mind, they're continuing to try to prove themselves because of what happened in their childhood. Oh, you didn't want me? I'll, I'll show you. Oh, I'm not enough? I'll prove I am enough. Oh, I'm not valuable? I'll prove my worth. And so they continue to work harder and harder and harder because of this wound that they had. Now, it's not just true of them. It's true of all of us. This is something all of us experience, whether you're adopted or not. All of us have this voice in our head. Maybe it's the voice of a loved one, a parent, a sibling, a friend, a teacher. I had this, this event when I was 19, and I was in school, and I was studying to become a pastor. And I was actually, ironically, in my public speaking class where they teach you how to do public speaking. Clearly, they didn't do a great job. In fact, uh, the, the professor at the time was pretty fed up with me. 
I got to admit, I was kind of lazy. I probably didn't take it as serious if I needed to. It'd be like the day to share this, you know, in front of the class. And I'd be like, oh, that's today? No, I'm totally ready. Uh, what are we doing? Okay, yeah. And so I'd kind of wing it, and I just wasn't. And I don't know what his exact words were, but I know what I heard. What I heard from him was, Cody, you're never going to amount to anything. I'm like, I pay you to be here? Like, I could do this at home. My dad tells me that all the time. No, um, <laughs> no. I remember walking out of that class so angry. And I just, in my heart said, I will show you. I will show you that I am somebody. I will become someone. I will prove to you that you are wrong. And for about a decade, I worked myself to the edge of a cliff, physically and emotionally and relationally, to where I was about to fall off because I had this voice in my head that I was going to quiet, that I am somebody. I know I'm not the only one who's had this voice. Which, by the way, you know it's kind of sad? Do you think that he ever looked back and went, I wonder how that kid Cody's doing? You ever think he went on Facebook and went, Wow, he really is doing something with his life. No, he never thought about me again after that moment. But his voice echoed in my head for a long time. And it may not be a professor, it might be a parent, and it might be a friend. But there's this voice that we just continue to fight and say, no, 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 I am going to be enough. I am going to prove that I am somebody. It's this fear of being inadequate. Fear also pushes us to miss out on some great things in life. <laughs> my son went to back to school night, or I went to back to school night for my son uh, a couple of weeks ago. And we came in the class and there was this flowers on her desk. And I clearly, I didn't know this, but my wife goes, we gave her those flowers. And I go, oh yeah, those are great. <laughs> and the teacher says, oh, thank you for the flowers. I got them from your son. I'm sure you had something to do with it. And I'm like, no, her, but yeah. She said, I gotta tell you a funny story. Um, when he came in the class, he had this big bouquet of flowers and it was just hanging out of his backpack. And I asked him, I said, oh, well, those are beautiful flowers. And he just went, yeah. She's like, okay. Um, did you bring them for somebody? Uh-huh. All right. Uh, did you bring them for somebody in this room, maybe? He goes, mm-hmm. She finally just, did you bring them for me? And he goes, there you go. Yep. Never said a word. Nothing. So I went to him afterward, and I'm like, dude, you blew it. That was a huge opportunity, man. Your mom was trying to set you up for success right here. And she was trying to get the teacher on your good side. Look, I know your, your, your intellect and your good looks probably aren't going to get you there, so we sent flowers. All right? <laughs> Kidding. Great. But, but he missed out. And I, I would guess it's because, one, he's a, you know, a kid where he'd be embarrassed to give flowers in front of all his friends, but he's driven by fear. You missed out on an opportunity because of fear. And I can't tell you how many opportunities in life, good things that I could have pursued, things that God has gifted me with, and I've missed out because I'm just too afraid. If I look back on my life and I look at all the incredible gifts that God has given me, so many things that I don't deserve, and doors that he has opened up for me that I have not walked through because I've been too afraid. I'm too afraid of what could happen if I fail. I'm too afraid what could happen if something goes wrong and somebody gets hurt. I'm too afraid of losing the gifts that he's given me. I, I should be a person that is full of joy 24-7. And yet, you know what the number one emotion that I feel is? 
fear and anxiety. I'm afraid. And it's driven me to do some really stupid things and it's kept me from pursuing some really great things. But you know what pride and fear have in common? They're inward focused. They're all about me. It's all about me. I'm always afraid or I'm always full of pride when I look inside. And I think that's why God continues to try to push us outward, to look beyond ourselves. Verse 5 says this. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that people were building. So you don't really catch it here, but what the author is doing is he's being condescending. Because from their perspective, they're doing something grand. They're going up into the heavens. Look at what we've been able to do. And then from God's perspective, he goes, oh, it's like a little Lego tower. How cute. That is so cute what you guys have built there. Now, obviously, God doesn't have to go down, but he's using that language in order to talk about, look at, to to see things from God's perspective. Oh, my goodness, we have accomplished so much. We have done so much. And he goes, oh, my, look at that. Let me go down and see what the kids are working on. Verse 6. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. And when you first read this, you kind of think, is God threatened by what they're up to? He just goes, man, if they can build a 300-foot tower, they're going to be able to take over everything. They're going to kick me out of heaven. No, he's not afraid of this. He's not threatened by this. What he's concerned about is not what's going to happen to him, but what's going to happen to them. Because as he watches them unify around this common goal, it doesn't often turn out well. So um, we're told all the time, guys, we got to work together. We got to unify. We got to do, we got to communicate. And that's partly right, but it's really only good to unify if you have something in common that is good. Right, because throughout human history, there's been a lot of people who have unified, they're great at communication, and then they go and they kill six million people. Or they rally around this political ideology, Stalinism, the Maoists, the Nazis, mobs and gangs, all unified, all tight, ends in destruction. And so what God was doing was, he was actually trying to limit the amount of damage that they could do to themselves. Because if they're able to consolidate this much power, there's no saying what they're going to be able to accomplish. Not good, but bad. There's, a, um, there's an interview recently from an atheist and a Christian, and they were talking about the new atheist movement that took place in the mid-2000s. If you don't know about it, it was these four guys who wrote these best-selling books. You had Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett. And they wrote these books that sold millions of copies. And they had conferences where thousands of people would gather. They were like rock stars. They were taking over the world. And what happened is, in the last decade or so, there has been this dramatic falling out. Not even just amongst them, but amongst the, the whole movement. The thing kind of fell apart. And they were reflecting on, well, what really happened there? And this is me interpreting it, but I think what happened there was they tried to build another tower of Babel to their greatness because the whole thing was based on we don't need God, we don't believe in God, it's about us and we're going to be able to realize our hopes and dreams based on our own ingenuity and creativity. We don't need all that superstition. And so they built this giant tower in their name and it all crumbled in the end. 
And one of the leaders of the movement, biologist P.Z. Myers, and still an atheist, as he looked back on being a part of that movement, he said it was the biggest regret of his life because how it ended. It's just another tower. It's just another tower built on us, on me, on my greatness. And it's just another tower that ends up failing. And so here's what God does, verse 7. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. God is now judging them because of what they have done, but you may miss what they did wrong. It wasn't about a tower. It wasn't about a building project. It wasn't about making a city. It wasn't about any of that stuff. What it was was they were trying to use God in order to get what they wanted, and God was not interested in being used. See, God is not a means to an end. He is the end. He is the point. And so whenever we try to use God for something else, God is not interested in being a part of that. He says, no, 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 no. You don't use me. I'm I'm the one that you're aiming for. Jesus has this terrible passage, uh, or the passage that Jesus says, he says, on judgment day, people are going to come to him and say, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We drove out demons. We performed miracles. And his response will be, get away from me, evildoers. I never knew you. Because those people are people who claim to know Jesus, in fact, did know Jesus, but the reason why they knew Jesus was not so that they could worship him, but so that they could be worshiped. He was a means to an end so that they could become celebrities, so they could be successful, so that they could be someone. And God, and Jesus says, I don't even know you. Not that I don't know of you, not that I'm not familiar with you. He said, no, no, we don't know each other because you thought I was a means to an end, and I'm not that. I am the end. If you, um, if you woke up tomorrow and your spouse came to you and said, you know, I've been holding this in for a long time, but I don't love you. I've been using you this entire time. I married you for your money. I married you for your good looks, which is one of my biggest fears that I wake up. <laughs> Amy's just going to go, look, <laughs> i got to be honest. It's that dad bod. Um, no. Or it's you know, fill in the blank, connections, relationships, whatever. You'd be devastated, right? That's what God's saying here is, don't think that we're going to be in a relationship so that you can use me to get something. No, no, I want you to be in a relationship with me for me. And so here's what he does in verse 8. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth. God's solution to this problem is to scatter them, but that ultimately isn't the solution. Because even if they scatter, do you know what happens as they're scattered all over the earth and they become tribes and they become nations? Is they're just going to end up fighting one another. It's not going to solve any problems. It's going to limit one, but it's also going to create another. And God knows this isn't the solution. But here's what does happen. And they stopped building the city. Because all construction is going to stop. God could have destroyed the tower, but he doesn't. And I kind of wonder, why didn't he destroy the tower? Like, you know, throw some flames down on that thing and wipe it out. And I think the reason is because he wanted it to be a reminder. He sent in a message. Every time you walk by this failed project, this tower that is now crumbling and rotting, I want you to see what it looks like to live a life where it's based on something besides me. This is what it all ends up being, is if you make your life about you and your greatness and building your city, this is what it will turn out to be. We have a version of this in our family. It's called the wall of shame. 
and the wall of shame is in my dad's garage and on it are different points and things that have happened that we're embarrassed of so that we remind ourselves not to do it again. Very healthy exercise. <laughs> but on there are things like uh, my dad's tailgate that now has a giant crease in the middle of it when he backed into a pole. Or there's the quad tire that has exploded into pieces because my mom ran into a rock. Or there's the front bumper of the riding lawnmower where my dad got scared going down the hill and just bailed on it and just sent it right into a tree. <laughs> All of these are just walls of shame. And when he walked by, we just go, oh, that was dumb. I shouldn't have done that. I kind of think that's what God's doing. Is he goes, here is your tower of shame. Just remind you, every time you walk by, man, that was a bad idea. That did not turn out well. Tim Keller says, when you inevitably face the disappointment of a broken tower, of something that has failed you, something that you thought was going to bring the ultimate, that was going to glorify you and your greatness, whatever it is, whether it's wealth or relationship, it's health, it's beauty, whatever that thing is, it will eventually fail you. And when that happens, you have one of four options. He says, the first thing is you can blame the tower, meaning you can blame the thing that you built your life on. Well, the marriage didn't work because she's a mess. The business didn't work because my partner, he just doesn't know what he's doing. Well, you see, it would have gone better if they had just treated me fairly. If I wasn't a victim, it's their fault. Or you can blame yourself. All right, well, it didn't work because I just, I didn't work hard enough at it. If I just put in a few more hours, if I had just been a little bit smarter, a little bit more creative, if I wasn't just broken inside, then I would have been able to be loved. It's my fault it didn't work. Or he says, you can just blame the whole world. It's a rigged system. Uh, it's people like me who are always going to be pushed to the bottom. I'm never going to be able to succeed. People are just plain mean and evil. And so I'm just going to numb the pain for the rest of my life. Or I'm just going to be cynical and angry at everybody in the world. Or he says, you can do this. He says, you could admit that it was never going to fulfill you. Because there may be truth in all of those things, and there probably is. But even if everything went exactly how you planned, and you have a marriage of a lifetime, or you build an incredible company, or your kids turn out to be ultra successful, even if all of those things happen, at the end, you're still going to be empty. You're never going to be filled. You're still going to have this hole, and you have to admit, it was never going to work. Verse 9. This is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, you don't see it here, but this city is actually Babylon. And the, the meaning of Babylon is, the, uh, I think it's the gateway to heaven. And what, or the gate of the gods, which is what they thought that they were building. But then the author starts to mock them and make fun of them. And he says, no, 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 it's not Babylon, it's Babel, which means to confuse. And so what he's saying is they thought that they were building a gateway to the gods, the ultimate. But what they're really doing is just speaking nonsense. And I, when I read that, I went, oh, we do that today still. This is like 4,000 years ago and we still speak nonsense. People who are supposed to be wise and tell us, here's how the world really works. Here's how you experience the ultimate. Here's how you reach nirvana and enlightenment. Here's how you can know God. And at the end of the day, I listen, I just go, no, that's nonsense. I listened to someone the other day who was 
putting on a symposium with all these academics and intellectuals, and the point of it was to talk about the meaning of life. What is the meaning of life? And he said, the best answer that I heard was this. The meaning of life is to find meaning. And when I heard that, everybody's like, ooh, that's so deep. <laughs> the meaning of life is to find meaning. Like, whoo. And the interviewer was like, oh, wow. And I just went, that's so dumb. That is so dumb. That is so dumb. That is not deep. That's nonsense. That's babble. Is you think that you're saying something, you think that you're, you're building a monument to your greatness, but what you're actually doing is you're just speaking a bunch of nonsense. If you fast forward to the next chapter, God does something really interesting. Let me read it for you. Here's what it says. The Lord had said to Abram, now at this point, we don't know who this is because nobody really knows who he is. He's a nobody. But God just says, this guy, Abram, I want you to go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Keep going. I will make you into a great nation. So, you remember the whole point of the last story was these people wanted to, to build a great city. Well, God goes, oh, no, no, I'm going to do better than that. This nobody, I'm going to have you build a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Wait, wait, hold it. I will do what? I will make your name great. <laughs> but that's what they wanted. The things that they were aiming for. I want to be known. I want to make my name great. I want to build this city. And guess what he says? He turns around and he goes to this nobody and he says, I'm actually going to make your name great. But it's not going to be through your power and strength that your name becomes great. It's simply going to be because I have chosen you and you have said yes. Continues, he says, and you will be a blessing. Last verse. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Now here's what's crazy. He takes this nobody and all the things that the people of Babel were striving for in their own strength and power, he now turns around to a nobody and says, I'm going to give them to you. You just simply have to say yes. Will you follow me or not? Will you trust me? If you trust me, I'll make your name great. By the way, he did. You know how I know that? Because I know his name. This is 4,000 years ago. His name's Abraham. He's one of the most important people who has ever lived. And he's a nobody who God turned into a somebody. And then this idea of I'm going to create a nation. He did that too. Through his family, he creates this nation which we know now as Israel. He did it with a no one who simply said yes. Well, this nation becomes God's chosen people. And through them, he's going to bless the entire world. And if we fast forward about 1,800 years after this, the capital of that nation is Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is a place in which Jesus comes and he eventually is crucified and he resurrects. And when he is talking to his followers, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to wait in Jerusalem and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit arrives, you're going to experience power. Here's the scene. All of them those followers of Jesus, were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to, check this out, speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This is the bookend to the story. This is the ending to the Tower of Babel. Is when you try to do things for your own greatness and glory and you do them in your own power, it is going to end in confusion and destruction. But when you dedicate your life to living for God and making his name great, He's going to unify and enable. 
See, all the things that were taken away were given back when they decided to stop building their own kingdom and start building his. Augustine, in his book, that probably one of the most important books in Western history, The City of God, he says that humanity has a choice. They can live in one of two cities. They can live in the city of God or the city of man. And we see those illustrated here. We see the city of man in the people of Babel. And it's repeated over and over and over again. And he says, you can live in that city or you can live in the city of God, which is represented in the church, this movement that God has founded. And he compares and he contrasts the two cities. He says, one is based on power, the other in service. One is focused on making a name for yourself. The other is on making God's name great. One is rooted in pride, the other in humility. One is marked by conflict and competition and the other in unity and harmony. And all of us are born into the city of man. You can see it within us. We're constantly focused in on me. What are my wants? What are my desires? What do I think is going to be best? It's based on me. And everything around us continues to tell us, you should live in that city, the city of self. And even if you don't know what you want, we'll tell you what you want, and then we're going to sell it to you. Because it's all about you. The whole world revolves around you. But then Jesus arrives and he says, you know, you don't have to live like that. You don't have to live in the city of man. You can live in the city of God, but you've got to stop thinking about yourself and you've got to make me the priority. Augustine says the thing that makes these two cities fundamentally different is what they love. Both cities are founded in love. And oftentimes when we think about ourselves, we think of ourselves, and James K. Smith in his book points this out, is we think about ourselves as thinking things. That's how we change. That's how we know ourselves. That's how we learn is, is we have to consume more knowledge. He says that's not actually true. We're not primarily thinking things, but we're primarily loving things. We're lovers. We're shaped primarily by, by what we love. This week, my son went to chapel here at the, the school, and my wife went to go help out and to watch, and this little girl in his class runs up to my wife and pulls her in and whispers in her ear, I have a crush on Jed, and then runs off giggling, and Jed is our youngest. And I, I heard about it, and I talked to Jed afterward on the way home from school, and I told him what had happened, and I said, oh, I heard such and such has a crush on you. And he giggled and went, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, even at five, we're just shaped by love. It's what we do. It's who we are. Not just romantic love, of course, but, but there's love. That's what we're seeking. That's what shapes us. It says that's what determines which city that you live in, is who you love, it says there's two loves that have made the two cities. Love of self, even to the point of contempt for God, made the earthly city. And the love of God, even to the point of contempt for self, made the heavenly city. And he says, this is how you decide which city you're going to live in. Do you love yourself or do you love God? Which one do you love most? Because that's going to decide which city you live in. The city of me or the city of God. If I want to be a member in the city of God, well, we're going to have to live differently. And part of living differently is we're going to have to love differently. And so I think the question that we have to ask ourselves is, who do you love? Do you love self or do you love God more? Let's pray. Lord God, we are, uh, we are constantly looking inward. Every day we get up and one of the first thoughts on our mind is probably focused in on ourselves. And the whole world around us tells us that's a good thing. 
is that loving ourselves, being focused on ourselves and our needs, that's the point of life. And yet you have showed us a radically different way to live. One in which it's not about us, but it's about you. And, and when we take our focus from being inward to outward, we find freedom. Freedom from ourselves and ultimately freedom from our sins. And so, Lord God, we just pray that you would enable us to be people who are citizens in the city of God. In your name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.